like to ask you if you would to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. I decided to preach the same passage that I preached 10 years ago on our launch Sunday. And of course I can't say for sure into the future what will happen, but it would be sweet if subsequent generations would return to this passage on every 10 years because it does provide a a guide, a mechanism to test whether the church is continuing in biblical faithfulness and vision. But we want to reread it this morning with anticipation, remembering this is God's word full of power to transform us and life to revive us. Let's read it with that expectation. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Lord, bless the preaching and obeying of your word. I'm sure most of us have seen pictures of the great pyramids in Egypt. You've seen those, those three large pyramids, uh, various movies. They're, they're depicted at some level or postcards and so forth. And I, I am struck by the incredible engineering feat that they are. I was reading something about them that they, they really are marvels of engineering. Um, they, they are positioned, one of the pyramids in particular, is positioned towards true north They speculate that the Egyptian engineers who constructed these things must have lined them up according to the stars of the Big and Little Dipper uh, to figure out how to orient them. They're within one one one-thousandth of an an absolutely accurate true north uh, orientation, which is extraordinary uh, given the limitations that they would have had at the time. Another thing that's extraordinary about them is the sheer size and weight. One stone, I think, that is at at an elevated point uh, in the Great Pyramid is is 25 tons, uh, multiple stones or multiple tons each. So trying to discern how these people could have possibly oriented to that level of precision and and raised these overwhelming structures and raised them with such precision and accuracy that they've lasted thousands of years and can still be seen today. It it is unbelievable, particularly when you consider the, the limitations that the civilization would have had in doing that kind of monumental work. No, no computers and you know, laser survey equipment and so forth. It, it's just remarkable what they constructed in light of their limitations. Well, the church of Jesus Christ is not a physical building But spiritually speaking, it is the most important construction project on earth. 
And though its ultimate builder is God, it is extraordinary that he has chosen to use limited and weak people. He's actually intentionally chosen to use limited and weak people. And yet, unlike the pyramids, we don't have to wonder how such limited people accomplish such a historic building because the explanation is provided for us in God's word. It is the power of God energizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the explanation. How how do such weak, limited people over the years construct something that has lasted for millennia and will last until the Lord Jesus returns? How how is that possible? How is such a building built? How is each each expression of that building built? Well, it, it is provided for us how that takes place right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and many other places as well. And as we reach our 10-year anniversary, I I wanted to go back to this opening message that I preached, which at that point was a declaration of our intention to build according to God's design for the building of his church, to build according to the blueprint we have received and according to the power instructions we've received. And 10 years later, I want to return and and re-envision us to continue on following the design of the Lord and depending, as we should, on the only power that can explain the building that is the church enduring until he returns. We we want Redemption Hill to be built in the way that Paul describes the church as it ought to be built. And that's what's happening here. We could summarize that this way. A faithful church is built on the word of Christ crucified by the power of God. A faithful church, the true church, and any expression of that true church Any local expression, it's built on the word of Christ crucified by the power of God. Or we could shorten the sentence to say, we build on Christ by the power of God. We build on Christ by the power of God. Now, I I just want to make four observations, and I promise this won't be a a lengthy message given where we are in the morning already. But four observations of Paul's building techniques that are handed down to us and are meant to inspire us as we look forward to the next 10 years of this expression of God's church. So four observations. His refusal, his focus, his humility, and his power. His refusal, his focus, his humility, and his power. First of all, his refusal. Notice at the beginning of the passage, Paul begins by saying what he did not do. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. The essence of Paul's ministry is contained in that phrase, proclaiming the testimony of God. He is representing God. God's testimony is proclaimed through Paul. That's what a pastor does. That's what builds the church, is proclaiming the word of God. But he wants them to know there was a particular way that I would not do that. Namely, look at the phrase there, with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, the context is helpful. The Corinthians were very impressed with lofty rhetorical speech and human philosophical wisdom. This isn't Paul saying I was an idiot in every regard. He's saying, look, your, your things that you're fascinated with lofty, rhetorical, man-centered philosophies and rhetorical flourishes of speech, you think that is sufficient to build a church. You think that's what's impressive. So I intentionally chose to not speak in that way, 
To not, we could put it this way, to not do anything that would make it seem like the building of the church depends on my skill. That ultimately, what's going on here is you have a gifted individual and a bunch of people who are amazed at him. Paul says, no, that is not what happened. That is not the way the church is built. And our culture is not necessarily concerned with every kind of philosophy that the Corinthians were or not necessarily concerned with fancy public speaking, although some things endure through the ages. The temptation to build the church on man-centered techniques, on fancy, dazzling ministries that affect our kind of human sensibilities to emphasize that the church ought to be a, an entertaining place or a place that's comfortable to just watch and observe and be wowed by what somebody else is doing. Paul says, no, I will not build the church that way. We will not build the church as an entertainment center. We will not build the church by tickling the ears of people that are seeped in the ideologies of the culture. We're not going to tell them just what they enjoy hearing, what the culture is already affirming. And I, I find in the church this is a perennial problem, that churches can be tempted to listen to what is popular in the culture and to attempt to package that in a Christian way and deliver it in an attempt to gain congregants. Paul says, no, I, I will not do that. I'm not going to flatter you. I'm not going for popularity. I'm not going for anything man-centered. I will not do that when I present the testimony of God. So the first thing we want to notice about the building of the church is it's not built on man-centered wisdom, man-centered techniques, or we could say popular approved methods for gathering a crowd. No, Paul says, I will not do that. I will not do things just because they sound impressive to a cultural ear. No matter what those things are, I will not do things because they sound impressive to a cultural ear. Whatever they happen to be in your generation, I will not just say the phrases and say the slogans because that's popular right now and that's what's going to get people in the seats. No, he says. So the first thing you notice about the building of a faithful church is what it will not do. It will not build on those things. You notice Paul's refusal. Gordon Fee, the commentary writer, says this. In every possible way, Paul tried to show them the folly of their present fascination with wisdom. He means cultural wisdom, which has inherent within it the folly of self-sufficiency and self-congratulation. Even the preacher whom God used to bring them to faith had to reject self-reliance. One sense is that for Paul, this is not merely a historical replay of his time with them, but also function, functions as something of a paradigm for his understanding of Christian ministry. This is a crucial lesson for building the church today. We don't build or seek a church that is focused on worldly wisdom. Okay, point number two, Paul's focus. Paul's focus he says in verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, we receive that and we should as a theological focus that our focus and our messages and our ministries is going to be on Christ and not just Christ in some triumphalistic way. Christ as the one who died for sinners. But for the Corinthians, that was also a statement that undermined their pride. Th those statements are connected. When he says, I'm, I'm not going to preach in a lofty way to wow you, 
I'm going to preach, and we could paraphrase it this way, I'm going to preach the thing that is the most scandalous, embarrassing thing you can imagine. That we worship a Savior who was crucified on a Roman cross in utter infamy by the culture of the day. So this isn't a, a random insertion of theology unrelated to the method of his preaching. He's saying, look, the, the reason I'm, I'm not going to be flashy or attempt to be man-centered or driven by human philosophies is because I'm tied to a crucified Messiah who is to be exalted precisely because he was humiliated in order to save us, who is glorious because he died in weakness for sinners, who is the Savior because he died on a cross. And I'm going to make that my focus. He says, I will know nothing. It doesn't mean he didn't teach any other doctrines. We know he taught all the doctrines of the faith. But everything he taught would be explicitly tied back to Christ. It would be tied back to Christ, and again, not just Christ in a triumphant kind of way. Christ as the crucified one. Christ as the one who exhibits the reality of sin in his death, and the reality of holiness, and the necessity of a, a singular salvation. That Christ will be preached by me, and I will not be pulled away from that focus, however unpopular or scandalizing that may be. It speaks to the church about the necessity of preaching and believing and clinging to Christ and him crucified. Not, not just in the, the, the current popular notion or phrasing of a, of a gospel-centeredness that, that rightly celebrates grace, but in terms of a, a clinging to all that the cross communicates about a, a holy God and a sinful humanity and a, a singular source of salvation. He's saying, I will preach that Whatever the cost and popularity may be, what you will hear from me, whatever I'm talking about, will ultimately connect back to that. So you could accurately say, it's like you know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Yes, exactly. And that's the way our church ought to be. That's the way our community fellowships ought to be. That's the way our parenting teaching ought to be. That, that's the way our, our discussions from one member to another in the midst of hard times ought to be. It, it, ought, it ought to be that we tie all that we are back to a crucified Savior who died sufficiently for sinners and purchased their forgiveness and gave them hope because he eradicated the wrath of God that was directed towards them. Everything we do ought to be tied to that truth. All of our preaching and all of our fellowship ought to be connected the way Paul's was to Christ and him crucified. We're not preaching a moralistic or a, a therapeutic or a merely human comforting kind of message. We're preaching about a, a savior who suffered a bloody death on behalf of sinners in order to save them and bring them into God's presence. That's what we're preaching. That's what we're building on. We, we build on Christ, not on flashy human rhetoric not on impressive human schemes of philosophy, not on the latest popular slogan of the day. He says, no, we preach Christ crucified, however unpopular he may be. Notice Paul's focus. Gordon Fee says, to know nothing does not mean that he left all other knowledge aside, but rather that he had the gospel with its crucified Messiah as his singular focus and passion while he was among them. We want to notice Paul's focus. Thirdly, we want to notice Paul's humility. Notice Paul's humility. And this is not about Paul. Paul frequently will do this. He'll describe himself as a way of saying, follow me as I follow Christ. 
I, I'm presenting my ministry to you as a, a blueprint for the building of the church all the way down through the ages right to this church in Round Rock. Notice Paul's humility. He says, I was weak with you in verse 3 with weakness and in fear and much trembling. And then he repeats what he said earlier. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Again, that's human wisdom. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So it, it wasn't just that Paul intentionally wasn't taking advantage of the popular methods for popularity in his day. It's that he was also willing to be transparently humble before them and to be among them in an unimpressive fashion. He was in weakness and fear and much trembling. We don't know necessarily what all the fear and trembling would have come from. Paul certainly was aware of opposition he would have been aware of the dangerous idol systems of the day and their adherence. It's quite possible he was experiencing human weakness when he was with the Corinthians. All of those things might be combined. And he wasn't, here's the key point, he wasn't attempting to pretend like everything was okay. And he was strong and he felt strong and he wasn't aware of any weaknesses or vulnerabilities. He was with them, he says, in weakness and even in fear, and in much trembling. And in that culture in particular, and the same is true today, to be in weakness and in fear and much trembling is not impressive. It's not glorified. And we want to notice, Paul is not weak for its own sake. It's not like, it's not like he's saying, I, I pretended to be weak so you'd feel sorry for me. His point is saying, I, I actually was weak, and I wasn't afraid for you to know that. There is, there is a type of weakness today that almost, almost glorifies a, a type of indecision, a kind of trembling manner of life, because it seeks to gain sympathy. But that's not what Paul's doing. He's saying, no, the, the actual parts of me that really are weak, that really are vulnerable, that really are even tempted by fear, I, I, I want you to know those things. I, I am who I am in front of you, you might say. I'm, I'm vulnerable. I'm, I'm not strong. I'm weak. That ought to be true of pastors. It ought to be true of the church. We don't want to build a church that is filled with people who are constantly looking to pretend like they're strong. We want to build a church with people who are willing to acknowledge that they are weak. We are all weak. We are all tremblers. We all have areas of fear. That is true of every human being, every Christian, immature and mature. That is true of us. The, the question is not whether we are weak. It's whether we will allow the reality of our weakness to be honestly and transparently revealed to those that we know and love. Not for its own sake. Not to gain attention but so that no one would mistake what's going on in our life that's good as credited to our power. That's the goal of that. It's not to gain sympathetic attention and an all shucks, what a hard life you've had. No, that's not the goal. That's just an inverse kind of pride. That's just self-pity. That's looking for attention. No, th this is just honestly acknowledging, not because you want attention, but because you don't want attention. You don't want focus. You are uncomfortable with praise. Not out of some false humility, but because honestly, I, I'm weak. Here's weakness. 
I am not impressive. I, I don't know in this situation what is right to do. I don't know what's supposed to happen. I don't know. And I'm not kidding. I'm not being falsely humble. I really don't know. I really don't have that much strength. I really did fail in that way. I really was limited. I really am vulnerable. I don't always have it together. This should work into like fellowship conversations in the community group. When somebody says, how, how does this topic affect you? Or how are you doing in your spiritual life? It shouldn't be the case that the answer is nine times out of ten. I'm doing great. Not because you lie and say you're not doing great in an area where you really are doing great. Because if you're always doing great, you're out of touch with some area of weakness in your life. Some vulnerability. Paul was very in touch with being weak and even fearful, even trembling. He was saying, I, I, I was honest, gladly to be that with you. Glad to acknowledge that I'm weak and vulnerable with you because, and this gets to point number four, his power. Because, he says, I was with you not in my own strength, not in impressive ministry capabilities that I, I wanted you to be built into those gifts, built into those powers of persuasion. No, no, I don't want you built in there. Don't be built in there. Rather, I was with you in demonstrations of the spirit and of power so that, and here's the goal, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. The reason he did not seek to impress with words of worldly rhetoric was not accidental, but so that their faith, their confidence, their trust would not rest in a man, but in the power of God. Paul was humble because he was determined that the church would be consciously built, trusting in the supernatural power of the Spirit of God, and most likely what he has in view there is the Spirit of God's power to convert idol worshipers to become worshipers of the living God. Because he makes the point later in the passage that even as grateful as he is for their spiritual gifts, what he is most most amazed by is that the Spirit of God has made a former blasphemer a Christian. What he's most impressed by is that the Spirit of God has power to use a weak, trembling, fearful apostle in this moment to preach the word of Christ and through the energy of the Spirit, former blasphemers and idol worshipers now declare Christ is Lord. And that's what he wants the church to always be built on. The word of Christ by the power of God. And one of our burdens as we look ahead to the next 10 years, and I think one of the unique temptations for a church after it has been established, and we have been established. We are no longer a church plant, though we're celebrating the planting of our church this morning. We are not a church plant anymore. We are established. We have ministries and multiple community groups and multiple pastors and multiple things that are rocking and rolling on a Sunday morning. The danger is that like the Israelites when they entered the land, we cease to be dependent on God and start to be dependent on us. That's one of the dangers, because when you come to a field that has no house, you instantly are aware you need God to provide, because it might rain tomorrow and there's no roof. But once you have a house and you're in the house, you're tempted to think, I already have all I need. 
and I don't feel as dependent anymore, and that is a temptation for a church. As it grows in size, as it grows in structure, as it buys land, as it has a building, those things are gifts and they're tools, and I don't think God intends us to be wandering nomads all of our days, but I do think we have to be realistic about the temptation, which is why, as we look ahead to the rest of this fall and next spring, we're going to be focusing on passages of Scripture that emphasize the power of God. Our next series starting next week is going to be the, uh, titled Miracle, The Power of God for Salvation. And then we're going to do a series starting the year called Teach Us to Pray. And part of the big picture reason for those is we don't want to become complacent on this point. That our faith might not rest in the wisdom of men or the establishment of a church or the size of a church or the gifting of pastors or the establishment of a building project or any of those things, but on the power of God. Because God loves to work through people who are consciously weak and dependent on him like he worked through Paul. We want a church that preaches Christ preaches Christ crucified, it doesn't view power in some emotional sense disconnected from the word of the gospel. It's driven by the word of Christ, the word of a crucified Savior, but it is, it's dependent on the power of God. It's dependent on the, the only God who can build his church, who can save sinners, who can raise the dead, who can heal the sick, who can reach the lost, who can plant churches, who can evangelize the nations. There is only one being who can do that, and it is God himself working through the message of the gospel. And we want to make sure our church isn't just a group of moral, nice, friendly, good Christian people that aren't dependent and longing for and expecting the power of God to do in our day what he does in Scripture. We want that dependence to be true in our church. We want to see his power at work on Sunday morning so that our lives are actually changed through the preaching of the word. We don't just affirm messages that are accurate and go home unchanged. We are changed by the power of God's word. We want to see his power at work in our marriages so that we're not just nice co-parents, but husbands and wives whose unity and marriage proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, who are a living gospel message. Husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives respecting their husbands as the church respects her Lord. We want to see the power of God at work in our children as we communicate the gospel to them so we devote ourselves to prayer for the next generation. We want to see the power of God at work in our evangelism so that the next 10 years we'll see those who are currently following the ways of this world coming to know Jesus Christ and coming into the congregation of the saints. Only the power of God can do that in our church. We want to see the power of God at work in church planting and global missions. We, we want to see our church used in seeing the gospel go forward in this community, in this area, around the world, through our partner churches, and through faithful gospel ministry. But we want to, we want to not view that as, as a token ministries that every church has to check a box for, and we're not invested in spiritually. We want to see the power of God, demonstrations of the spirit and power. We want to be consciously dependent on that. We want to see the power of God at work as we support and send and pray for Christians in other locations and for people ministering in unique ways in our church. 
We want to be a church that is never impressed, never impressed with ourselves. We encourage each other. We celebrate God's grace in each other, but we transfer the glory to the Lord by whose strength anything good that happens, happens. That's our disposition. And even today, as we celebrate, as we encourage, as we honor, as the Bible tells us to do, we, we transfer the glory to the Lord and we look to the future with a conscious dependence on God. Lord, do more. Do more among us. Bring unbelievers to us that they might come to faith. Raise up the weak. Take those who are currently children in the faith and make them strong. Make them oaks of maturity. Take those that are on the fringes of church community and make them pillars of the church community. Take those who are timid in evangelism and make them bold in preaching the gospel. Take those who do not know the word very well and make them scholars of the faith. Only the Spirit can do that as the word of Christ is proclaimed and as the church consciously throws itself in dependence on the Spirit of God. That's what we want to see. We want Redemption Hill to be a place where the size and endurance of this building makes no sense when you look at the resources of its members. We want it to be the case that people have to ask, how is such a thing built? How is it built? How is it so kind? How is it loving? How is it generous? How is it sending? How is it reaching? How is it doing that? Because looking at you, that makes no sense. And then we can say, we preach Christ crucified by the power of God. We want a church whose only explanation is the power of God energizing the word of Christ in preaching moments and in private moments. We want that to be our church so that generations from now, people can look God willing at something still standing and say, how? The word of Christ by the power of God. Let's pray. Lord, we give you the glory. We give you all the glory for the building of this church, for the building of your church. Lord, we give you the glory for Center Church in Gilbert. We give you the glory for Christ Church of Conroe. We give you the glory for Mission City Fellowship in San Antonio. Lord, these are expressions of your church that you will build. And Lord, make us faithful. Lord, you see 10 years from now. May this passage still be a faithful guide 10 years from now and accurately reflect the ministry and the hopes and the dependence of this church. Give us grace, Lord, to be faithful to it and build your church for your glory. And Lord, as we head into this song and this afternoon, Lord, we're going to be celebrating, we're going to be eating and enjoying and laughing, but Lord, receive pleasure. We're celebrating your faithfulness. We're eating and we're enjoying because you're so generous, but Lord, we're, we're celebrating you. This is your party, Lord. We are celebrating your anniversary that for some kind reason you have included us in. So receive the glory and help us to endlessly be dependent on you. Unless you build the house, Lord, we labor in vain. But you will build it in such a way that will bring about your praise. In Jesus' name.